Hi, guys. Welcome back to Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another cool day for an interview. And I'm so honored to have Heather Hutchison with me. Heather is a singer-songwriter, an author who has recently published her memoirs. And she is here to share with me and with you guys out there her challenges uh, with regards to uh, suffering from a disability, in her case, blindness, and at the same token, mental, uh, uh, mental health problems at a time when really the healthcare resources were strained to the, to the maximum with COVID. So you can't get it more challenging than that kind of trouble whammy here. And I'm so pleased that, A, Heather is here in one piece uh, as the, 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 the voice of, of sharing her lessons and actually coming here to us and, and just exploring that. And maybe we can all learn from these lessons and see that we can make this world a little bit better, this interview and many interviews more to come. So guys, on that note, press the subscribe button down there and tell your friends about this show because we have got so many beautiful, beautiful people that are coming onto this show. So many guests who have gone through hell and back and kept going and are now sharing their lessons, the lessons that they learned the hard way. And maybe you might just see that a little bit of a light and in your own darkness to show you that it is not hopeless, it is not helpless, that there is a way forward and that whatever crap is hitting your life at the moment, that life goes on and that you will be able to recover. So Heather, I'm so grateful to have you on my show. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Uh, Heather, you have written your book and we'll come to that in a moment. But uh, was that was that when you were a little girl, did you go to your mommy and say, hey, mommy, I'm going to write a book one day. I'm going to be a singer, songwriter and an award winning author and all that. That's what I'm going to do. Hmm. Actually, I kind of did. And then, you know, as life goes on, you kind of lose that dream and you start maybe focusing on more realistic things. But oddly enough, I came back to both of those things because, yeah, I wanted to be a singer and an author. Those were kind of the two oh, things. Cool. Yeah, oh, cool. or a vet, but that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's weird because we all are like that. I wanted to be a vet when I was a young boy. Yeah. Uh, and then I realized that actually helping humans is so much more rewarding. And then I went in to, to become a doctor. Yeah. And uh, that is cool. But no, the singer-songwriter, wow. So was were you always, always composing words and, and were you a wordsmith at an early stage? Yeah, I would have like this old heavy tape recorder that I would carry around with me like forever since I pretty much learned to talk and I would be, you know, constantly dictating stories or writing songs, stuff like that. I remember being about six and I asked my brother to loan me a hundred dollars so I could record a CD, which obviously is not enough money to record a CD, but. Excellent. Did you? Did he? Did he give you a hundred dollars? Yeah, he said he would loan it to me at like 20 or 30% interest. So <laughs> very generous of him. But yeah. no, it, it took another 10 years before I actually started recording an album. Excellent. But you did. You yes. actually pursued your passion. Yes. What, what were your songs about? And, and what kind of, of music uh, have, you, have you produced? My songs have always kind of just been about the human experience. So when I started to get more serious into songwriting in my early teens, I was feeling, you know, pretty alone. I was already struggling at that point with my mental health. And songs were really that creative outlet to actually sit down at the piano and, and really get out what I was feeling and kind of make sense of it. And then as I started sharing my music with more people, you know, to have people come up to me after a show and be like, this song really helped me or I was going through this and this song meant that to me. And it was just like to have that human connection gave me the purpose I needed to kind of carry on, even though I was struggling so much with mental health. It's beautiful. And ultimately, writing songs or poetry can be such a revealing 
uh, thing for yourself. Mm-hmm. Often the emotions that we feel are sort of really like big big waves that are crashing over us mm-hmm. and until you actually try to put these these uh, neurochemical waves into words sometimes you actually can't even realize what is truly going on mm-hmm. was that did that happen to you that when you actually started writing a song that you suddenly had a breakthrough to actually understand huh that's actually why i feel so crappy at the moment that is the focus Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In both the songs and then writing the book, I would Mm. say writing the book even more so because Mm. putting all those things, kind of all the events into chronological order as I was writing the book, it was like, oh, yeah, well, this happened probably Mm. because of that. And Mm. it just gave me, yeah, in songs and writing the book, it it is huge for insight, I think, or journaling Mm. is another big one. Exactly. And it just shows that that ultimately um, us creating words and writing them down or singing them in your case um, is so beautiful because it allows us to to deal with our emotions in such a beautiful, constructive way than rather being being a, a hostage and a prisoner in this this ongoing madness of 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 inside our head Mm -hmm. and when I say madness uh, I mean every single person out there every single person all the nine or ten billion that we have got at the moment will have these weird thoughts of I'm not good enough I'm worthless I am you know the the imposter syndrome who do you think you are for who do you think you are you go up on stage and 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 anyhow you you can't make money with that you need to get a job you need to get you know all this kind of crap that these these belief systems that are deep inside of us um as far as you were were starting out with this singing songwriting um at an early stage was that supported by your parents are your parents artistic or no actually i'm the only one i have one aunt who plays the piano and that's literally the only person in my family (laughs) extended or otherwise that has like any sort of musicality at all but yeah my family was actually really good about it and you know, let me take lessons and all those things. So yeah, they were supportive. Yeah. Even though they didn't really play. Cool. And it's interesting that you say they let you take lessons. So you actually took the lead there. And rather than the typical story that parents think that the the child has to learn an instrument, forces them to get into guitar, flute or piano or whatever it is. And then the kids hate it. So it was well, other way I around did. With you. I did at first because they did make me go into it at first. And then I went back to it as I got ah. older and I was writing more songs. And I was like, oh, I actually need to learn to accompany myself. So I'm going to actually take this more seriously because no, initially I didn't. Ah, cool. So the same fate. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever yeah. mommy and daddy are saying is wrong. Okay. Yeah, so that's exactly. cool. <laughs> so, so you're not different. I love that. I love that. No. <laughs> and I think that's a fate of generations, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. So cool. And uh, did you have, who were your role models? Who was the music you listened to when you were younger? Who gave I you loved- hope initially? Amy Lee from Evanescence. She was like uh-huh. my hero as I first kind of started more seriously songwriting. And yeah. I just really admired how, I don't know if you're familiar with their music. Um, but no, she, no. No? Well, it's the the music of sad teenagers everywhere from my generation, oh, I guess. Oh, okay, okay. But I just loved how, how expressive she was about what she was feeling and stuff. And it was like, well, maybe I can do that too. Maybe that's okay. Beautiful. So from the word go, it was more the emotional side, uh, the, the mm-hmm. human uh, sensations and feelings that were that were the focus of both the music you listened to as well as the music you wrote. For sure. So you were never never tempted to be a, a more political songwriter, the, the classic singer songwriters of the of the sixties, seventies, uh, Joan Baez, and 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 uh, all these uh, Janis Joplin things like that. So you were not not planning on going to Woodstock anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean my parents listened to that kind of music, so I was yeah. around it, but. Yeah. 
Yeah, when I so, started getting more my own taste, that wasn't really where I gravitated to initially. Uh, no, fair call, fair call. Because sometimes when you have got a message, it is you're not clear from the word go what that message actually is. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes you you go on detours, and so that's the I am trying to figure out what was your detour. You were not a headbanger playing Bon Jovi at some stage, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I had my goth phase. I had oh, like excellent. all the, the chains and the, you know, dark eye makeup and long black hair and everything. So. Excellent. Oh, excellent. I would love to see a picture of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they exist, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cringe roughly as they were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> would be interesting. Have you written songs during that period? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Some oh. of them are on Spotify. So. Oh, excellent. excellent. <laughs> yeah, I can't hide all of it. I can oh. hide the pictures, but the oh. music's out there. <laughs> but then again, that is that is life is a journey. And mm -hmm. and for crying out loud, it is uh, you are the generic, the real thing. So your songs are reflecting that. And that's beautiful. Um, you are not a a product of a record label no that no. you're not a brand that stays exactly the same taking bon jovi as i just said they made uh, it clear that they stayed in more or less the same kind of way a very successful way mm -hmm. but there were no going off the deep end with some psychedelic kind of music no they stuck mm -mm. to what was working um Whilst you, obviously, you, you've tried to figure out what was working. And yeah. that is so beautiful to see. Yeah. Aww. Um, so you were writing the songs. And did that make you money? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, I mean, yes, but not really in the traditional way that people think. You know, everybody gets rich and hmm. you're either super rich or you're super poor. Exactly. <laughs> I think when they think about musicians, yeah. um, things have definitely gotten more challenging over the past mm. number of years, even before COVID. Yeah. I don't really know what's going to happen with the music industry, especially now. But it was honestly struggling even before COVID because of um, Spotify and, yeah. you know, people not buying records anymore. So recorded music yeah. is really expensive to produce and it's oh. essentially worthless now because of streaming. Very interesting, isn't it? And mm -hmm. in all fairness, I, I love, of course, uh, these kind of, of services because it gives me, A, it gives me actually access to people that normally I would have never listened to. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Recently, I found, uh, I found quite a lot of really uh, young uh, singers with fantastic voices, with fantastic passion in their voices, um, and love to hear their renditions of, of, of older songs. Yeah. Wow, blows me away. So well done to that. So that's the good side of it. But of course, yeah. yes. Okay, how do they get the money? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm um, guilty too. I have Spotify and everything. Uh, I held out for for as long as I could for all the years, you. but <laughs> but I love it too. Like discovering new music and everything, you know, the, the curated playlists and everything is awesome. So Isn't yeah, that? there definitely is the good side to it as well. It is. So, okay. Then, but then again, this is, this might be actually, this might be the revolution that the music industry needs because after all the music industry uh, was an interesting beast. Um, mm -hmm. So if you were to become the flavor of the month, then you were the flavor of the month. But that's what, one in 10,000 chance for a band? Um, Probably even less. Oh, less than, yeah, that's yeah. true. The 10,000 was the 90s and, and to early 2000s from memory. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. And there were some, some strong gatekeepers and mm -hmm. all the... The problems that flew on from that, the Me Too movement and, and all those kind of things, where essentially there was a very dark underbelly to yeah. the music industry and, and any kind of entertainment industry. Yes. So, oh God, who knows? Who knows where this is going? Yeah. But in your case, I mean, your, your, your passion will not stop right now just because there's a challenge. On the contrary, I think I can't wait to hear more, more songs there coming out from you because you're obviously, this is, this is something that is a passion. 
yeah, that yeah. you have turned into a mission and a you know first vision and then mission and but you keep going and then suddenly this idea of the book came along what mm -hmm. was the catalyst what made you think about writing a book so i was well people have always kind of said oh you should write a book and i've kind of been like well no like what i don't really have anything to say yeah. And I remember a couple months before I was hospitalized, I was talking to my therapist and I was like, you know what, I could write a book about all the shit people do and say to me in public because I'm blind. And he kind of stopped and went, well, maybe you should. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. And then I was in the hospital one night and I was laying awake. I couldn't sleep. And somebody was flown in by air ambulance in critical condition. And as soon as they got there, they called a code blue and everything. And I was laying there listening to all this go on and thinking like, my God, this poor person's family and their loved ones, they must be having one of the scariest nights of their lives. And mm. I started thinking about my own loved ones and thinking, how can I feel so much compassion for this person's loved ones while knowing the decision I want to make will devastate my own. And I started thinking about the person and thinking about how they were fighting to live in the same place that I was fighting to die. And I realized that I had a choice and I felt like I had come to this crossroads. I could either live or I could die. And if I chose to live in that moment, then I knew I had to do something good from a really difficult situation. So in that moment, I kind of realized, no, I need to I need to get well enough to get out of the hospital so I can tell my story. Wow. How did depression manifest itself for you? I mean, you obviously had a, a long history of it, but what, how did it feel for you? And what were the, the, the important bits or the important aspects of it for you? How would you describe it to a friend? Yeah, it's how do you describe depression? It's such a, a complex thing, I think, to describe to somebody who's never experienced it because they kind of think, oh, you know, it's it's sadness, yeah. but it's so much more than sadness. So I would Isn't go it? through yeah. like major depressive episodes. Sometimes they would last a couple of weeks. Sometimes it would be a couple months. I would stop eating. I would stop sleeping. My hair would fall out. Mm. I would have suicidal ideation. So all, all that kind of thing. And I just, I would be so tired, but completely unable to sleep but you know all you want to do is sleep so it's it's this pain that's like pretty indescribable I think if you haven't felt it I I don't know that there's much worse than you know feeling that severe depression you're so right you're so right uh, recently I had a, um, a guest who was uh, who is a uh, tetraplegic who has basically had a spinal cord injury and he, one of the words he said was that the depression paralyzed him so much more than mm -hmm. his spinal cord injury did. Yeah. And I think that's sad. That's sad a lot. And yeah. it is, it is so true. Depression mm -hmm. is, and depression, I, I describe it as a chameleon because it, it, basically comes in so many shapes forms sizes sometimes mm -hmm. it's it's as quiet as a ghost in the night and sometimes well ghosts are not quiet in the night are they so that's such a bad example <laughs> <True>. <laughs> they typically come with rattles and then stuff yeah, like that yeah if you're no, noticing so. <laughs> them yeah <laughs> oh that's true okay so i need to find a different picture but yeah i guess you get you get where i'm coming from it is yeah. it is can be very 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 insidious and yes. so slowly in its onset that mm -hmm. you're just sort of sliding into it and because yeah. it's so slow you you're not recognizing it uh, immediately yeah. for what it is mm -hmm. and, it's and that I, spiral isn't it exactly yeah. and it can be so vicious and it is and you you experienced it a few times did it become easier for you to recognize what was going on or did I... lack or did lack of insight remain part of the problem no, I think it did get easier and it certainly has since I've come out of the hospital. But I think what kind of led me to the hospital was not being able to get that outpatient help. So I knew it was happening, but uh, there wasn't really anywhere, I guess, 
You know, sure. I was still had some outpatient counseling services, but it was all over the phone. All my doctors sure. and therapists were only talking to people over the phone. They weren't even doing video calls. So they uh-huh. really didn't see what was happening and there just wasn't quite enough support. Mm. So I couldn't, uh, yeah, I would say I knew it was happening, but I couldn't get it under control. That's, of course, that's a tricky bit, isn't it? With mm-hmm. COVID, um, you suddenly had this revolution of, of healthcare system happening where we had to completely change the way we uh, were doing it from, yeah. from a doctor's point of view. And I utterly, utterly hate phone consults. <laughs> um, I, before yeah. I'm an anesthetist, so I send people off to sleep for elective surgeries nowadays. And I make a point of actually meeting people face-to-face before their surgery so oh, that nice. they can look me in the eyes, that yeah. they can get to know me, that they can hear my voice and, and figure out that I'm actually quite an, not a bad dude uh, mm-hmm. and that I will do my utmost to look after them. Mm-hmm. Now, much of that, 95% of that is nonverbal communication, the, the mm-hmm. way I'm, I am, I hold myself, etc. Many of these things will not be able to be done over the phone. Yes. Um, and therefore, doctors were shying away from that suddenly and suddenly they had to do it. So mm-hmm. it's awful, awful. Um, so therefore, because we're not used to it, we are also not so good in it. And we, we there's a steep learning curve to mm-hmm. doing uh, telemedicine, so to speak. And it's it's chaotic. And you were caught up in exactly that. Yeah. You had there was no no there was no oh, no rule book how to do that. There was no no easy way forward, neither for you nor for the doctors on the receiving end. Yeah, everyone was doing their best, but exactly. nobody, it was so unprecedented. Nobody really knew what to do. Exactly. But I'm, I'm so pleased that ultimately there was actually a room uh, for you in the healthcare system that you could mm-hmm. seek the help that you needed at that moment in time. It is certainly um, our hospitals here in New Zealand, when, when our first scare with COVID happened, uh, they basically closed off every, every service there and, and um, brought in big refrigerated uh, containers, not for the, for, for the care of the people in the summer, uh, rather to keep <laughs> the corpses fresh. Um, mm-hmm. That was actually the kind of attitude. So therefore, mm-hmm. a mental health problem or inpatient care for less urgent things was immediately culled. Yes. So here you are, you were actually, um, you were extremely lucky in my I opinion. I know, yeah. How did you, <laughs> how did you get so lucky? I.e. I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know I what know, I'm alluding I, to. I mean, your, your depression must have been deemed serious enough and you were already alluding to it that you were there doubting if you wanted to continue to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I was admitted as an involuntary patient, which kind of wasn't my plan. I, I actually went willingly to the hospital, but I went looking for absolution. I didn't want to get better. I had no interest in it. I didn't think it was possible, but I went because I figured that my family and friends afterwards would want to know that I had tried something, you know, after I was dead. So I went there and my whole plan was that they were going to be like, oh, you're fine, go home, you know, all this COVID <laughs> stuff, everything going on. It didn't work out that way. <laughs> my plan failed. So, <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, so you had a concrete suicide plan? Yes. Yeah. Mm. How long have you had this plan? It's changed over the years, but there's always been... It's always kind of been something that I've kept, I guess, in my back pocket, you know, like I kind of describe it as somebody carries around like a lucky penny or something like that, something that like brings them comfort in times of stress. So I kind of hung on to that, Mm. but it was never like super, I'd never decided really on a time or date or anything like that. It was just always like, oh, if things get bad enough, then then I can. But then when COVID came, I was just coming out of a major depressive episode and I ended up going way back into it. And there was so much that we couldn't control and control is like 
one of my big things. I need to control everything. Mm -hmm. So in a world that was so chaotic and out of control, I decided that the only thing that I could control was how and when I would die. So I made those plans and I figured, okay, I'll go to the hospital. It'll make people feel better afterwards and then they'll let me out and I'll go home and I'll die. But that was not meant to be. Someone, no, no, someone uh, listened to you and listened in between the lines. Yes. And understood where you were at. Yeah. yeah. Who was that person? Well, they first had me talk to a crisis nurse and she kind of mm. said, well, I'm not really sure what we're going to do. We're going to have to bring in an ER doctor and she'll have to make the decision and do the paperwork. So... Mm. I talked to the crisis nurse first and then I waited a couple hours and the ER doctor came in and she was fantastic. She was super nice and she just said, yeah, we're, we're going to keep you. Um, you're going to be admitted. You're not going home tonight. And you'll talk to the psychiatrist in the morning because at that point it was getting kind of late. They'd done their rounds and everything. Mm. So they, yeah, just basically kept me in the psych ER for a couple of days until they were actually able to move me onto a different ward psych er <laughs> yeah <laughs> is, Wait, is, it? is it different there i don't know what oh, hell <laughs> we don't have a psych er uh, oh no a, oh, okay no. No. okay we are we are a town of 60,000 people um we have oh, got okay. a beautiful uh, hospital there um but our mental health services are unfortunately overstretched and mm -hmm. and uh that is, but that's the story of New Zealand. Uh, we are a smallish country, and regrettably, yeah. the needs uh, of our patients are often um, far bigger than what the healthcare system can provide you with. Yeah, that is that is the, the naked truth and the brutal truth that many people don't want to accept as what it is. Yeah, and um, I think it's the same thing in Canada. I just, mm. for whatever reason, got really lucky. Mm. I'm so pleased for you. That's all I can say. Yeah. Um, maybe I should actually try to get your ER doctor on the phone and, and <laughs> A, say thank you and B, maybe get this person even onto the onto my show. To, to yeah, say, there you go. Hey, yeah. The, you know, the uncaped heroes of, of this world, there is one of them. Or in this case, she probably came with a big invisible set of, of angel wings. Yeah, um, yeah. But she was there for you. Yeah, the healthcare people... I don't know. They, they were so amazing. Like just watching them work through, mm. you know, cause they had so many more restrictions and things that they were working under and, and just giving like the kindest care and just really trying when nobody knew what the hell was going on. It was, they really are just absolutely incredible. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Oh, how long were you admitted? Uh, nine days. Okay, so that was relatively short, um, yeah. and but it was probably nine days that were that were a lifesaver. Yeah. What what got you out of that deep, deep, dark night of the soul? Well, I think that I think nine days actually in Canada. Speaking of the lack of mental health care, is actually fairly long because it's oh. all public health care. So yeah. you know they they you're still bleeding and they kick you out. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, so okay. yeah, I was even really lucky, I think, to have gotten the chance to stay there as long as I did. I know a lot of people look at it as, you know, an inconvenience because it is. You get your freedom taken away. You don't get to do anything. They take uh, your clothes. They take your everything, right? Of course. Um, so, you know, at the time, it's like they they read you your rights, <laughs> kind of mm. like you're being arrested. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I was really fortunate to get to stay there as long as I did, which, mm. you know, probably saved me because I think if I'd spent a day or two, I would have gone home and still not felt any better. And mm. and I think what really did save me was that that night, um, that person coming in, that mm. patient and really having that idea. And then it gave me the purpose that I needed to actually, you know, cooperate with the doctors and nurses, be a, an active part of my treatment plan mm -hmm. 
um, because I had this thing that I needed to do once I got out of the hospital that didn't include dying. So yeah, I think Beautiful. it was that and, and just really, yeah, because actually the next day after that revelation was actually a really awful day. Like things got way worse before they got better. But I think I was so shell-shocked before that I just like I had no emotions. Mm. And then the day after something happened in group therapy and I went back to my room and I just felt like this most profound grief ever. And one of the psych nurses actually came and sat with me for a while. And then they actually did sedate me because um, mm. there was just... It was honestly probably the kindest thing to do and just, mm. okay, you go to sleep, we'll try again tomorrow sort mm. of thing. Mm. Mm. And I think that was really the the pivotal turning point of things for me. And isn't it bizarre? Because I loved what you just said. There was suddenly this wave of emotion. And uh, for someone who hasn't had depression, um, it is it is so bizarre. Hang on, is, is depression not an emotion? Why is there a wave of emotion? Depression can be this emptiness, this complete yeah. loneliness, this this vacuum, this void of absolutely anything pleasant. And sometimes even you go beyond unpleasant, you just don't give a fuck anymore. No, it's just no. emptiness. And that is, absolutely. I guess, what you described there. And then yes. suddenly there was this wave of grief coming over you. And that is so beautiful. You actually felt something, yet it is scary because you feel something. And it's not <laughs> yes. a nice, it's not a nice yeah. thing, is it? Yeah, no, no, it's not. And it's just the, the weight of the world all of a sudden after feeling so yeah. numb. And then you just feel the weight of the world yeah. and it's just like devastating, but it clearly yeah. needed to happen. Yeah. When you say the weight of the world, does that mean shame and guilt or does, what do you mean with weight of the world? Yeah, the shame, the guilt, the like, how the hell did this happen? How did I end up here? You know, this isn't how my life was supposed to go. Nobody as a little mm. kid is like, yeah, I'm going to get involuntarily admitted <laughs> to the psych ward. Nobody wants that. Nobody plans for that. Exactly. So yeah, just all of that. And, and you know, yeah. the grief of, of the past and the yeah. fear for the future, because I was actually thinking I might have a future and that was pretty scary. So all of that mm. was just... The weight of the world. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Because that's part of your journey. That yeah. is, that is the part of of being in recovery. Is such a beautiful, beautiful path. I mean, I say recovery. Recovery is typically sort of reserved as a description for for getting better after mm -hmm. sobriety, or as part of sobriety, as after addiction. In reality. Um, recovery is so much more. It is yes. uh, trying to to make sense out of uh, what has happened to you in the past, of trying to define a new future for yourself and taking steps towards that. That is recovery. And it doesn't matter if that is after a major depressive episode or if it is after you having a complete spin out with drugs. Um, it doesn't really matter. No, so, no that's perfect. It's so true. And it is, and, and on that note, I recently had a guest, and she described herself as an recovering depressive. And okay. I actually liked yeah. it. <laughs> That's, yeah, I like that. <laughs> she was, and it's interesting, her story was, uh, it's not yet aired, so I, I won't give too many details away, but uh, her story was essentially uh, equally there because her recovery, her getting better from her depression um, was influenced by the fact that she could not get access to the, the treatment services similar to you. Mm -hmm. And so she had to find her own ways and she had to come up with uh, with uh, daily micro habits and daily yeah. things that she could do to actually move forward. And mm -hmm. so it was not necessarily for a lack of well, it was certainly a bit of a lack of medical help there, lack of access to medical uh, help that allowed her to become active, that forced her to take steps and figure out if these steps are actually productive and moving forward. And that actually worked for her. So yeah. I think we will see many more stories coming out like yours and, and this other guest who... Um, 
due to these very bizarre circumstances that we live in right now with this pandemic that is wiping out whole generations of the elderly and now starting to affect the younger younger generations. So here we are, and, and you are living proof of this social revolution, the social upheaval that we are facing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and therefore, it's so important that you've put it into a book, that you've put your, your, your words down on paper, because this is uncharted territory. This, yeah. is, this is people, it's a, well, okay, let's go one step back. It's not uncharted territory. We've been here before, 1990. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, and after, long time ago. <laughs> well, exactly right. The living memory is long gone. The people who have learned the lessons, they never wrote them out down. They never gave on those those lessons of of desperation, of their insights, their trauma. After the Second World War, same thing. Um, a whole generation became the silent generation. They wanted to move on. They didn't want to share their experiences. And nowadays, luckily, we have got different media. We have got ways of self-publishing. We have got ways of, of many different things where we can make a difference. We can share our lessons that we have learned and therefore show others that there is help and hope. And that's exactly what you have done with your book. Yeah. So. And for that, I'm very grateful because you have taken steps to make this world a little bit better by sharing okay. honestly. That's the hope. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the whole thing, isn't it? That's a, yeah. Um, show us your book, please, please. There you go. Holding on by letting go. And that is such a beautiful title. What does it mean to you? It was. Why did you choose that? I think I was actually talking to one of my friends. She read one of the really early drafts and I was kind of like, what's the overall theme to you? And she kind of said surrender. And I thought, yeah, it is surrender, but surrender is different than giving up. It's surrendering to the things about us that we can't change. And Mm -hmm. in letting go of those things, we are able to hold on to, you know, the bigger picture, which for me was life. Ah, beautiful. Indeed, holding on to what is important, life. <laughs> God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, power to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Mm-hmm. A beautiful little prayer that I've got around my neck um, and that uh, I got myself on my first day out, the, the first day out, uh, out of my rehab, um, we went to, to a shopping mall because like you, I got myself admitted voluntarily, well, kind of voluntarily, shall I say. My wife got me admitted um, to a rehab hospital and voluntary contract. So for I, I gave up my powers for a, a month. And basically you were a compulsory inmate. You were not going out um, for mm-hmm. the first two weeks. It really pissed me off. But I, then, <laughs> I then, can relate. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's very, very weird to get that that kind of uh, lack of control. But yeah. it was exactly what I needed. I needed to be stripped down from the bullshit that I told myself from, oh, I need to be taken out into a protective bubble where I could actually rebuild myself and, and literally look long and hard at myself and not being overwhelmed by all the things that were my previous life. Mm -hmm. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. So, but having said that, it is, I remember that, that feeling of incarceration of, of being, being, and we, we jokingly called ourselves inmates. Um, (laughs) So it it is like that. So yeah, I hear you. (laughs) But then we had uh, on a Wednesday, they organized, okay, we can go out to a shopping mall for two hours uh, and they would drive us there and wait for us, et cetera. And that was cool. And so I organized that uh, with my wife and she then came the first time. So that was beautiful. And this, I lived my life by that. And in weird terms, that was exactly the first thing that struck me when I walked into the rehab center. There was a big, big uh, serenity prayer was there written in huge letters on the wall. And I thought, wow, they hung that up for me. How did they know Mm. how I felt? 
And <laughs> only then did I realize that actually for 100 years, hundreds of years, that serenity prayer is actually, yeah, guidance for so many people us, uh, like us out there. Yeah. And in my case, I got introduced to it with alcohol. In your case, you got exactly introduced to the same topic, just in a different way with yeah, your depression. Absolutely. And it just shows how important it is in our in daily lives. Yeah, I think yeah. emotion is emotion, you know, it, mm. no matter what the cause, whether it's alcohol, whether it's mm. depression, you know, mm. we can all kind of relate to similar things in mm. in that recovery, like you were talking about. Mm. How beautiful. How long did it take you to write the book? It took, it's hard to, to say because, you know, so much, the writing is the easy part and then you've got to go back and edit it and um, <laughs> oh, hire yeah. an editor and then, uh, you know, go back through all their changes. And it's like uh, a little bit soul crushing because you get it back oh, and it's yeah. like, you know, all these like red marks all over it. And you're like, oh, oh yeah. man, but that's my story. But yeah, um, it probably took a couple months to actually write. I, I worked backwards. So I did the, the days in the hospital um, as soon as I could when I got home so that mm. they were kind of fresh in my mind and then worked yeah. backwards from there. But yeah, probably a couple months and then a few months of editing and all told it was probably about a year from, from start yeah. to finish before it came out. Beautiful. And that is in its own right, a huge therapy, isn't it? Because yes, you're, so God, you're, you're opening up wounds that you thought had long healed mm -hmm. and guess what pus is coming out <laughs> yeah not quite <laughs> still there same here same here uh, i wrote my steps to sobriety i wrote it probably similar the first draft over two months then a bit back and forth and i published you know about half a year later i published the first draft or the first version of the book mm -hmm. and it was all self-published and then i thought okay um a bit later on another year later i uh decided now i want to have a publisher uh, refresh it etc okay now there started a journey because i had mm -hmm. i thought i had come to terms with it my publisher said no 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 Let's let's I, you you hide behind quotes of others. You hide behind things. I want to hear the real you. Mm -hmm. and so there I went back and dug deeper and dug yeah. deeper and yeah. dug deeper. And bloody hell, what a freaking roller coaster again it was. Because yeah. it is once you start dealing with the past and do really a honest and brutal inventory of what really has occurred. Mm -hmm. um, you sooner or later not just come to those things that have occurred to you, but you also come to the point that maybe you took part of these things that happened to you and that maybe you had a role to play in those things that happened to mm -hmm. you. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> we're not passive in no. this life. You know, we're active no. participants in our own no. lives. So. How, did, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with, with these revelations that sort of came to you where you thought, oh, shit, um, for example, did you, when I wrote my, my book and I wrote a, a chapter, a postnatal depression about mm -hmm. uh, my wife's story and how I recalled it. And I gave it for her to read and I thought, mm -hmm. no, it's all good. And my goodness, <laughs> did we have a row on that day um, because she was very, very upset. She, yeah. she had yeah. a very different recollection of yeah. the same, same totally. time. Yes. There you go. So that happened. You say totally. So that happened yeah, to you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty common, pretty universal when we're writing. Memoir is hard because we're writing about people who are still alive, mm. who, you know, our own backgrounds and our own experiences shape our memories and their own backgrounds and experiences shape theirs. And, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in between. But I kind of rationalized it with, you know what, like, this is my experience. I'm telling my experience and how I saw it. And this is how I felt about this experience, which shaped my perceptions going forward. So, you know, my experience is kind of what counts in this, in this story. And, you know, if they want to tell their experience, they can write a book too. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Now there, there is the real ownership of saying, actually, you know what, guys, you might disagree with that, uh, that opinion or that that story as I told it. But in reality, I have actually fought long and hard about it. And that is the way I perceived it. And that is the mm -hmm. way I lived it. And if you don't like it, that's really your journey. 
That's really yeah. where you need to come to terms with certain things. Yeah. And that's actually quite hard. That's actually <laughs> quite it was, Yeah, it was a process. <laughs> there were a lot of sleepless nights like, oh my God, how is this person going to react? Or, exactly. You know, what exactly. if this person takes this thing I said a different way and they think oh, that yeah. I actually meant, you know, you overanalyze oh. everything. And, <laughs> and then it actually comes out and people, usually it's not actually as bad as you think it's yeah. going to be. Good. Good. And if it is, then maybe this was actually a conflict waiting to happen and mm -hmm. a conflict yeah. that needed to happen for you both to move on and yeah. or to at least come to terms with that you have got, uh, that you agree to disagree on, yeah. on certain things. But at least, again, you can put closure to something that maybe was still quietly festering and was quietly waiting to go boom in the night. Um, mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. You took action and it is a very, very beautiful feeling, isn't it? To actually complete the first draft, to actually stand back and think, wow, did I do that? Yeah, wow. yeah. Or to hold it in your hands the first time when it comes oh, back. From, it's, it's beautiful, like, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I get goosebumps. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> like that with like all my albums, and and then yeah. this book was the same thing. Like you, you finally open that box and hold it in your hands, and you're yeah, like, oh, this yeah. is this is why I did it. Oh, <laughs> and that is a moment of success that yes. has nothing to do with vanity. No, this is no. this is an achievement that you need to be proud of. And the same as, as with your songs, the moment you hear that song being played somewhere, um, it is just so beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so beautiful. Oh, excellent. Mm -hmm. Oh, Heather, it is. Oh, you've put so much of your soul in your writing, both in in your your songs as well as into your book. Um, you have come a long way too, over years now. What would be the message that you would send back to your younger self? Don't Have be you. so mean to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're so cruel to yourself and you don't need to be. <laughs> Isn't it? We are yeah. very good in that. We're so mm -hmm. good in that. Too good. Hypercritical and putting us down. Who do you think you are writing mm -hmm. a book? Who do you think you are going onto that stage? Yeah, right. Yeah. So how do you tell that voice to shut up? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the yeah. question. <laughs> no, one million dollar question. <laughs> I guess that's that's where CBT and stuff comes in. Yep. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's basically a um, a way of recognizing, learning to recognize what is happening in your body and in your mind, and why you behave the way you do behave. So it's actually a, a beautiful, a beautiful thing that can help so so many people. Was it scary to interact with uh, with healthcare professionals? Was it scary to interact with counselors? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd been in and out of therapy for, I guess, mo since I was thirteen. Hmm. So on and off. So that part of it was was, I guess semi-familiar but mm. the hospital like being in the mm. hospital environment being mm. you know essentially detained involuntarily as you as you said like incarcerated mm. that was kind of the the mm. difficult part mm. and I guess talking to the psychiatrists and things I hadn't had a psychiatrist at that point they were actually trying to get me in mm. right as as COVID hit kind of thing mm. And my my therapist was like, oh, the, the soonest I can get you in to see a psychiatrist is two months away. I'm going to try to move it up because this is super urgent, but mm, no mm. promises. And, you know, if if the hospital hadn't taken me, I wouldn't have survived to that appointment. So, mm. yeah, so I'd never had a psychiatrist before. So I guess that was like a little bit intimidating, but mainly just the hospital environment, I think, can be... It's not as bad as people think, but it, it mm. can be a little bit intimidating and it is something to mm. to get useful or to get used to. It it was definitely helpful, but it is mm. yeah, I mean there's certain things that you you remember from your time there that 
you can't really even talk about with other people who haven't been there and experienced the <laughs> same thing. So it, it can feel a little bit isolating, but mm. I definitely don't want to like discourage people from, from <laughs> going because I think it's so critical. I would even go one step back because the sheer fact when you are, uh, when you are in a situation where your life was more or less okay, and then suddenly a major depressive episode hits you, mm -hmm. which is not an uncommon scenario, then there is this, all these, these kind of myths and, and, and weird prejudices and uh, people will hold out and they think oh my god this is no 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 i'm not so bad i'm not so bad i don't need to see any what could they anyhow do and then you, you, you your mind comes up with all these stupid things um basically because you're afraid you're yeah. there is and there might be shame and guilt and there might be denial and many other emotions there but i guess the message that i want to send out there to any viewer or listener who recognize themselves maybe being at that stage if you if you just watch the olympics do you really think that any of these olympicians did or any of these sportsmen uh, and women did not have a performance coach every single one of them will have had a coach, AKA a psychologist, a performance psychologist to help them. Every CEO from a top 500 company will have their coach, their, their life coach, etc. AKA psychologist, counselor, mentor, etc. So here are all these successful people who in their daily life make use of psychologists, of people who can look at the mind, can look at you, how you cope, how you, what your belief system is and how that influences your actions and maybe can, can guide you towards maybe a more productive way of looking at things and maybe dealing with things. But here you are right now, knee deep in shit mentally, and we think, no, 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 I can do it all myself. No, 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 I'm a strong man. I'm, you know, I'm the breadwinner here. I will not need help. Or I'm a strong woman. I'm an emancipated woman. I can work five jobs, have three children and not sleep. And I feel good. Bullshit. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So, so no, please, guys. Um, it, is, it is beautiful once you find the right person with whom you gel and with uh, and who you go into a relationship with and this person starts to to help you and it's a it's not just once off you talk a bit and then that you're better it's the same as if you say well i go to the gym on saturday and that's it just one gym session and i'm going to be healthy for the rest of my life it doesn't work like that and it's the same with with seeking help for mental health problems it will take you some time to address the, the current acute problem, but that's only the start of a beautiful journey. Because then now that you have started actually opening up the wounds and letting the pus drain out, it's the same as if you start going to the dentist with a whole lot of rotten teeth. They can't just do everything to all the teeth. They start with one and suddenly you realize, ah, the pain is much better. But there's still some other holes and some other feelings that need to be done. So this is not a quick fix for you. And mental health is, is the same. And it's a beautiful journey. Certainly for me, it is that the last eight years have been an absolute beautiful journey of discovery where every day I get to learn new things about myself. I get to meet fantastic people here on my show. And, and the collaboration keeps going. So every day, like today, I've, I've uh, got Heather on my show and that earlier on I had another interview. So I just had three hours of therapy. Thank you very much. And that's, I didn't have to pay a dollar for it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so therefore, it's actually really, really cool. So, and that is the, the active choice that I do. I look after myself by doing this show. I look after myself for good nutrition and by, by being active, all these kind of things. And, and um, it's, I wouldn't have it any other way, but I can only do that because I've seen the darkness. I have been in some very, very, very dark places where I thought that there is no hope, that there's no way out. Well, there's one way out. That's similar to what you said. Um, 
these thoughts can come and they're they can be scary but you know one oh, it's about what is it between six and nine percent of the american population in the last year has had suicidal ideation so that's one in 20 to one in 10 and that is a high lot of people so therefore if you are suddenly having these thoughts then take it as a as a message from your body that something needs serious attention don't get spooked by it certainly don't follow through just say that your body is in distress that your mind is in distress that your soul your heart is in distress and try to figure out what's going on and then maybe similar to as you go with a doctor to a doctor when you have broken your bone or maybe go to a, a doctor with your broken soul and and open up and say hey i had this little accident um whatever accident that was that, that caused your soul to fracture um can you help me mending it and did you hear what i said guys can you help me mending it so not can you mend it for me that doesn't work so well in mental health um it is more <laughs> mental health is about you doing the hard work but rather instead of being crazy and paddling on one one spot in the sea you actually try to look around and say where's land ah oh, there is land okay now we make actually instead of paddling we swim into that direction there rather than just floating and never getting anywhere so guys this is all waiting for you and if if Heather can do it and if I can do it uh, tell me again what stops you no, I can't hear it either. No, 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 yeah. <laughs> Heather, um, what, what are sort of the parting words that you would tell people as far as, as your journey is concerned? What is sort of the, the message that you would love people really to go away with uh, when they finish this tape? Yeah, I think what I wouldn't tell people is, you know, tomorrow's a better day. It gets better, you know, empty platitudes because it's all a little bit bullshit <laughs> and uh, uh, I would like it? I remember when people would say that to me when I was going through it and that would uh, be like the exact point I would stop listening yeah, exactly. but what I can tell people is that I promise you there will come a day when you will feel so much joy in a moment and you'll yeah. stop in that moment and you'll think to yourself I would have missed this and I just I hope with all my heart that you will hang on for that day and that moment and that's so beautiful to say. That's that's absolutely true. See, you're a better wordsmith than me because your words came out better there. But I loved it that you picked me up on that because I absolutely agree with that. Um, that is, I can remember when people told me that ah, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Fuck off. It's not going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> exactly. No, that's, that's, you're so right. You're so right. Heather Hutchison, um, thank you so much for being on my show. Thank um, you. If people, if that resonates what you said with them, how can they get hold of you? Where can they get more information about you? They can visit my website at mm. www.heather-hutchison.com, H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N. I'm on Facebook at Heather Hutchison Music, Instagram, Heather Hutchison Music, um, hmm. Twitter, HL Hutchison, basically <laughs> anywhere you can go to my website and all my social links yeah. are there and my links to my music and my book and everything hmm. is all on that website. So beautiful. And guys, just look down there into the description of the, of the video and of the podcast. Everything is down there in the show notes. And once you're down there, press the subscribe button. And when you have subscribed, then you might as well think, hey, I should talk to at least three free people that I care about, about that cool show that this dude is doing, where he's bringing on people who have gone through hell and back and who kept going and are now sharing their precious stories and the precious lessons that they have learned, where they open up in complete humility and are demystifying mental health problems and being open. And that is this, this, this power that we have that Heather, you and I have taken on. That's our superpower that we have learned from the lessons and that we are now shouting from the rooftops that there is hope 
and that is that is a superpower that I will not never want to miss. And uh, until I die, I will uh, actively use that power to hopefully make this, this world a little bit better, just as much as you do with your songs and with your book. So thank you so much for coming onto my show. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye. Yeah.